All right, y'all, let's go ahead and take our seats. All right, so we're going to pray together. All right, so here's the psalm we're going to use, Psalm 18. So we're already cycling through, moving fairly quickly through these psalms, it seems like. All right, so here's the text. It goes, for it is you who light my lamp. So the picture here is a lamp uh, that has no light in it, and God lights the lamp. So you're like, a, you're like a fireplace with no fire. You're cold. You have no natural heat, no natural light, and he lights it, right? Then he says, for it's by you that I can now run against an army, and by you I can leap over a wall, right? So we are like an empty fireplace, uh, cold, uh, dark, uh, no, no ability to generate our own light, our own heat in life, and God is the one that lights your lamp. He's the one that lights your darkness. So that's what we're going to pray. So we might as well just confess it and say it, right? What tremendous peace and rest by saying, I'm an empty, damp, dark, cold fireplace. And I need you to light my lamp. Oh, Lord, we thank you that um, there is so much freedom and so much honesty and so much power in just admitting what we are and what we're like. And I know the Bible has words like, it's called repentance, and that's great. But sometimes, Lord, we know these words get packed throughout church history with meanings other than <laughs> what the Bible actually has them mean. Uh, they become stuff we don't even recognize, and therefore they become scary stuff. So what freeing reality is what repentance is, which is honesty before you about who we really are. So we want to be honest right now and say that we are that empty, dark, damp, lightless, lifeless furnace, fireplace. So, oh God, would you light our lamp? And so, Lord, we want to pray for other empty, cold, damp, dark fireplaces. Our spouse, our children, the person sitting to the left and right of us, our friends, our neighbors, our teachers, our coaches, our parents, our grandparents our cousins, our brothers, our sisters, our friends. Um, we want to pray that they would actually come to the tremendous freedom of not resisting the cosmic gravity of the universe, but actually turn and face it and admit who we really are. So we're asking that people we're praying for that they would have a gift of repentance 
to honestly admit who they really are before you. And Father, we ask that you would light their lamp. And so, Lord, we want to pray as a church, and we want to say that we are that empty, cold, damp, lightless, heatless fireplace. And collectively, Lord, we're asking you to light our lamp. And even in Revelation, it says that the church is like a lampstand lit by you. And so we want to say we only have light because of you. We only have heat because of you. We only do anything good in our life, in our relationships, as a church together in this world because of you. And so we're asking you to light our lamp. We're asking you, Lord, to use us in a dark place, for that is what the world is, and that is what homes are. That is what families and marriages and relationships and workplaces are apart from you. So, oh Lord, would you lighten the lamp of your church here? And not only Redeemer, Lord, we ask that you would do this across Waco, and we know that the way that you do lighten our lamp is by the hearing of the gospel, by the power of the gospel. And so, Lord, we ask that you would recover the wonder, the light of the gospel in your church to such an extent that, Lord, it would become the oxygen, it would become the air, it would become the engine of the church in Waco. And there would be sayings, things like people actually saying this and believing this, that it, it means something, good news, not good advice. It would mean something like, I wanted to come to church to experience Jesus with the Bible, that there would be a growing expectation, like there's one place I can go that I know Jesus will show up and that he will speak me back to life again, and that would be church. And then when that happens, that I'm reached and I'm renewed, Lord, that that would happen to our neighbors and our families and our friends, people we care about, our enemies, the people that are jerks. So Lord, would you grant the lighting of our lamp because you're the only one who can. So Lord, hear our prayers and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. We had a seven-on-seven seven practice yesterday, and I was asking some of the players that they had a good Thanksgiving, and one was on their third Thanksgiving, and poor little guy looked exhausted. He was on his third round of pies, and I said, oh, I just pity you. I feel so bad for you. Uh, we, had, <laughs> we had so much fun. I had, we had so much fun. We were laughing so hard. I think I pulled like a muscle in the, you know, that muscle that comes around here? Dr. Christie, who's here, had to fix me up yesterday. She explained what it was. I don't know. I couldn't pronounce it, what she said. But tons of fun, tons of laughter. I hope that that was your time. And if it's not, it's OK, too. You're OK. Absolutely OK. And maybe we could even talk about that. All right, so last week I told you, listen, we're heading into Thanksgiving. 
you know, you got these two weeks where everybody's gone in and out. I thought, well, I'll, I'll stick with Philippians. But then this week I said, I'm probably going to read something in the scriptures this week and preach on whatever grips me, whatever strikes me. Uh, I actually got that method from a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he wrote this book called Spiritual Depression, which was a series of sermons. And he didn't realize it, but that's how he did his sermons sometimes. He would have private readings with the Lord. There'd be passages that would strike him. And when they gripped him and struck him, he would just jot some things down. And he had this notebook, and they were, he started looking over all the things that were striking him. And he put it together in a bestseller that's still a bestseller today called Spiritual Depression. So I thought when I began the ministry and I read that in his bio, I said, I'm going to start doing that. And so I thought this week that that's what I would do. And then I saw uh, Adrian Harthorne. Are you here, Adrian? Oh, there he is. And he said, well, Jeff, why don't you just keep going through Philippians? I'm really liking Philippians. Please just do Philippians. And I said, listen, dude, I don't know if I want to do another Philippians passage. Um, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll read the text, right? And if it grips me, Maybe you'll hear it on Sunday. So, what do you think is going to happen this morning? Was it a text from somewhere else, or was it the next text in Philippians? Please stand for the hearing of Philippians. <laughs> oh, yes, here we go. You ready? All right, Philippians 4.2, I entreat Eodia, and I entreat Sintiki, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, and that true companion's not named. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness now, it doesn't have it up here, but there's a footnote. If you have a scripture open, you'll have a footnote by there because there's some other meanings that can possibly be. And so guess what? I'm going to have to tell you what that is. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I don't like that translation. The literal translation is the Lord is near. It just communicates better. It's actually what the original language says. So scratch that one, too. So two strikes for the ESV. Not good. Six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you that you do and are near. And that you're so near that Paul says the word is near you. And so, Lord, would you become incredibly, personally, powerfully active in this text right now in our life? Would you move into our thoughts and minds? Would we experience you, Jesus, with this text? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so there is a phrase in there that absolutely struck me, um, and we're going to get to it. But here's how we're going to begin, because this is how you need to understand this text. This Today's text, Paul, the Bible, God, is saying to us this morning, you and me this morning, it's not stated 
in a clear, sticky statement in the text, but it is absolutely assumed under everything of the text. Are you ready? Here's what it's saying to you. You are peaceless. There is no peace inside of you. If we were to open us up, you will find no peace inside of you. You will find no peace in your thinking. You will find no peace in your feelings. You will find no peace in your experiences. You will find no peace in your desiring. You will find no peace in your doing. You will find no peace in your relating. You will find no peace in the way you handle algebra. You will find no peace in the way you deal with other people. There is no peace in you. This also means that you cannot produce peace. So not only can you not find it, though we spend most of our life energy trying to find peace inside of us. But not only is it not found inside of us, we can't generate it. We can't produce it. We can't create peace. You are peaceless. There's no peace inside of you. This is why we are so anxious. Verse 6. Do not be anxious. This is present tense. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's very interesting, isn't it? About anything, and that's just as a killer. So Paul is saying stop being so stressed. Paul is saying stop obsessively thinking about Paul is saying, stop worrying, stop stressing, stop obsessing, stop fearing. Do not be anxious, present tense. Can we put that verse up there if we have it? Verse 6. Do not be anxious, present tense, about anything. Anything, anything. Your relationship with God, anything. Don't be anxious about your athletic performance, Anything. Don't be anxious about your schoolwork. Anything. Don't be anxious about your parents. Anything. Don't be anxious about your brother and your sister. Don't be anxious about your child. Anything. Don't be anxious about the future. Anything. Don't be anxious about current events. Anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be stressed out about anything. Now, verse 6 would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us would think difficult, hard, definitely imperfect, but I've got a shot. Do not be stressed out, anxious about anything, and all of us say, impossible. Can't be done. Disneyland. You are peaceless. There is no peace inside of you. This is why you're anxious. This is also why we're joyless, or we could say emotionally empty. Let's look at verse, uh, what is it? 
4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he's already said it once, so he's already commanded this once to us. And now this is number 2, and then number 3, and he says again. So 3 is perfect, it's complete, so this is like a big deal. And so Paul is again commanding you and me to be in a state of well-being in the Lord, to be in a state of happiness in the Lord, that Paul is actually commanding, the Bible is actually commanding, God is actually commanding for you to be happy, for you to be so at well-being, you are like solid, and you are like, you can't wait to get up. And you are like, bad news does nothing to me. Truth number one, the number one emotion of Christianity is joy. Truth number two, joy is only in the Lord. So Dr. Jones, I've been reading him a lot lately. I started reading that book, uh, Spiritual Depression. And it's interesting, in initial chapters, he started uh, identifying a character that most of us know, a guy named John Wesley. And he was a leader in the First Great Awakening, like the starter of the Methodist denomination. I mean, he's a big deal. And he says this, that uh, John Wesley had lived most of his Christian life without joy. And this is what he said. He says, it seems almost impossible that such a man who had been brought up in an unusually godly home, like he was brought up in an a very godly home, who had spent all his life and all his time in Christian work should be wrong about a first and so fundamental a point that he should have been wrong at the very beginning, but so it was so. So just to be clear, Wesley says this about himself too. This is not like he's picking on him. Jones continues, it is just here at this fundamental point that the devil causes confusion. It suits him well that such people should be concerned about sanctification and holiness and various other things, but they can never be right until they are right here. And that is why we must start here, because that's what he's doing in this book. He's saying the most fundamental issue of depression is this very thing he's about to talk about. It is no use going on to deal with the superstructure. The foundation is not right. We therefore must start with this great doctrine. So what is this great doctrine? And he says, and the scripture says, church history says, the peace of God. We are peaceless. There is no peace inside of you. This is why you are so emotionally empty. This is also why we are relationally prickly. Now, it means cactus-like. Or if you take the L-Y off prickly, you kind of get the same thing. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So there's a footnote there, and it could be graciousness. It could be... Um, Gentleness, forbearance, self-forgetfulness, non-defensiveness. The point is, you have such a state of inner peace that you don't think about yourself when you interact with other people. You have such a state of inner peace that when people can actually insult you and criticize you to your face, it does not bother you. 
you're at such a state of inner peace that you're not even aware that someone could be criticizing you and you're not even aware of what's going on and how they're thinking about you because you don't think about yourself. You are so free and so self-forgetful that you are absolutely forbearing and gracious and reasonable and able to deal with the hardest conversations, the easiest conversations, the most controversial conversations, and you're okay. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul is saying, let your inner peace be so self-evident and so displayed and so seen and so experienced by everyone you come in contact with that you're not even thinking about yourself. Impossible. You are peaceless. There is no peace inside of you. This is why we are so prickly. This is why the church is messy. Let's look at verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. All right, so there's a church conflict, right? We're not told what it is, but it's big enough for Paul to know about it. And it's big enough that he would write a whole church and insert the two people involved in the conflict in a letter. He doesn't say what it is, but now everybody for 2,000 years of church history know these two ladies, these two women leaders because of a church conflict, right? And Paul is basically saying to every church leader through these two ladies, every church leader and every church, no matter your tradition, he says to you, he says to me, agree in the Lord. It's not about you about Jesus. Agree in the Lord, he says. He says, be a gospel team. It's not about you, church leader. It's about Jesus. He says, stop being self-important, church leader. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. You are peaceless. There is no peace inside of you. This is why the church is so messy. Okay, feeling good, ready to go? All right, here's the second thing this text says to us. Amazing. So the second thing that Paul says, the second thing that God is saying, the second thing that the Bible says to you, not just that you are peaceless, it says to you, you need to be given peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, the Bible is saying, God is saying, there is a God of peace who gives you peace because you need peace because it's not found inside of you. And it's not just any peace. It's his peace. And when his peace comes to you, it heals you. And whatever his peace touches, it's healed. Our relationship with God is healed. Your relationship with yourself is healed. And what that means is, is that 
When your relationship with God is healed, we're going to look at that in a second. It means it's so right that you are right. And all of a sudden, your thinking and your feeling, your heart, your mind, as this text says, is right. Your relationships, the prickliness, the conflict are right. This text is saying that there is a great calm. And this great calm says, peace, be still. And the waves and the winds cease. And there's a great calm. This peace of God which surpasses, it surpasses all anxiety and surpasses all emotional emptiness and surpasses all prickliness and surpasses all church conflicts. This peace of God comes into your life and says, peace, be still, and every storm and every wind and every wave ceases. And there's a great calm. And the peace of God has just shown up. Because it comes from his very nature. It's the very peace that went into making the world that makes everything good. And it's the very peace that's now restoring the world to make it all good again. Amazing. This sort of struck me. Today's text, the Bible, Paul says to us this morning, you are peaceless, you need to be given peace, and the Lord is near. So let's look at verse 5. It's a very awkward thing. I want you to see that, that phrase right there. The Lord is at hand. Just scratch the at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Nobody knows what to do with it. Nobody knows where it fits in the text. There's no grammatical cues or clues. There's no preposition before it. There's no conjunction like, therefore, the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near, or but, contrast, the Lord is near, or uh, and the Lord is near, or for, this is the reason the Lord is near, or the result of that the Lord is near, or in order that the Lord is near. No one knows what to do with it. So does it go with verses 2 through 5, or does it go with verses 6 and 7? Nobody knows. It just sits there, dead center in the center of the text. It just sits there, immovable, in the center of the text. It just sits there, indomitable, in the center of the text. It just sits there, unavoidable, in the center of everything, in the center of anxiety, in the center of joylessness, in the center of relational prickliness, in the center of all church's messes, the Lord 
is That's the point. Now you could say he's not far, okay? The Lord is near. You could say he's not angry. The Lord is near. You could say a lot of things. The Lord is near. How near? I mean, that's what I was asking. I mean, if you look at my notes, sometimes I wonder what I'm thinking when I read the Bible. I would say things like, when I saw the Lord is near, I wrote things like, how near? What does that mean? Does that mean like I bump into him? Does that mean like he's passively near? He's just a good observer? He just watches? Does it mean he's actively near? Like he does things? Like he moves? Like he works? Like he, is he near because he loves? Is he near because he has compassion? What does it mean that he's near? So Kate Norris writes, We don't have peace because we worry, we're anxious, we're stressed. We worry, anxious, stressed, because we're afraid. We're afraid because we think we will be condemned. Whether it be the standards at work, a father's expectations, the ideal weight, or the Ten Commandments, we are terrified of falling short. Apostle John says it this way. He says, fear exists because it's related to punishment. So here's like, you know, the bestseller that should have been written before Brene Brown. The root of all anxiety. If you grab anxiety like a weed and you pull it up, what's the root? The root of all anxiety is condemnation, the fear of being condemned, the fear of being rejected, the fear of being judged. As Apostle John says, it has to do with punishment. And so even the little trickle of worry in your life and the little trickle of anxiety in your life or just the stress, if you were to like just grab it like a weed and pull it up, you're eventually going to find you fear being condemned. But the Lord is near you. How near, Jeff? How is he near? Near enough to touch you with his peace? near enough to just grab you and go, peace, be still. Near enough to say to you, I am your condemnation. I am your punishment. I am your curse. 
no condemnation is near you. Peace. Be still. Jesus says, I am your righteousness. Did you catch that in the text? It's really interesting. Let's go to uh, 7. It's an interesting picture. The peace of God which surpasses fill in the blank. That's what's basically said here. Well, guard, which is interesting. Remember, he's chained to the most elite soldiers in the world. He's being guarded, right? Well, guard your hearts, which has to do with your emotional structure, and your minds, which is interesting. It should say thoughts, because it's not your mind as a faculty. It's what your mind does, which it thinks thoughts. So, What's incredible about this is it's saying that the peace of God will stand sentry and guard your feelings and your thinkings in Christ Jesus. And how can it do that? Because the Lord is near. Because the Lord says to you, I am your righteousness. Told you this is a game changer. And what that means is Jesus says to you, I had perfect feelings, a perfect inner life, perfect thoughts for you because you don't. Peace. Be still. My righteousness is near you. My perfect thoughts and feelings are near you. You don't have to try to fix your thinking and your feeling. I mean, everybody that writes books on anxiety and mental health will tell you that most of the issues are caused by you trying to fix what you can't fix. Amazing. Paul would call that works salvation. Let's end. Today's text says, you are peaceless. You need to be given peace. The Lord is near you. He's your peace. So what do you do? Last thing the text says, so you pray. It's very, very simple. It's a very simple application. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. That means Anything and everything that makes you anxious. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. These are three synonyms for prayer, so please, please don't like overly distinguish these three things. Then overly systematize these three things so that you got to make sure you do these three types of prayer or it doesn't work. That's not the point of this text. These are three synonyms describing prayer so that to encourage you, just pray. Is Paul's point. So prayer, what does prayer do? Is that prayer connects you to the one who's near you. It doesn't connect you objectively because he is near you. Prayer connects you subjectively or experientially. Oh, he's near me. Prayer is a God-given way that we actually realize you're right there. 
He's saying, pray because I'm near. And when you pray, you might just start feeling it. You might just bump into me. You might just hear peace, child. Be still. I'm your peace. I'm your condemnation. I'm your righteousness. I think I'll end there. Let's pray.